Hello, everybody. It is, let's see, Wednesday, the 24th of January 2018. Uh, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. We'll go for about, oh, I'll say 82 minutes or so talking about the latest and greatest of mixed martial arts, but really whatever is on your mind. Best place to get your questions in, of course, is going to be on MMA Fighting, or I should say in MMA Fighting's comment section where this post is embedded. You may also tweet me at LThomasNews using the hashtag chat wrappers. All this has been explained probably a number of times. Uh, and uh, we'll get to that in the last 15 minutes of the chat. Probably some common topics, I'm going to guess, are Nate Diaz's social media post from last night on Instagram. Let's see, what else? Uh, Bellator 192 was last weekend. UFC 220 was last weekend. UFC on Fox 27 is coming up this weekend. There's never a shortage of topics. So uh, any of that, and I guess just about anything else that's on your mind, uh, let me know. By the way, folks have been asking me about Ben Rothwell. I have been trying mightily to get a hold of him. Doesn't want to talk. Not right now, anyway. Um, that might change in the future, but you guys have been asking me what's the deal with him, and the answer was I didn't know, so I was going to look into it. I'm trying to get him to speak, and nothing. So that may not be permanent. That may just be right now, but um, I don't know is the answer, and I have tried, and I have failed, but uh, I at least have tried. I have tried to look into it. He does not wish to speak, apparently, so I guess we have to respect that. He doesn't have to talk, and... Um, Draw whatever conclusions you would like to draw. All right. With that out of the way, let us get to the questions for the live chat, shall we? All right. Uh, first comment is green. Hi, Luke. Hope you're well. This fine Wednesday. Greetings from a gray London. I do like London. Uh, it's expensive, London, but it's a wonderful city. A couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that media journalists can't look up to fighters the same way as fans do because they know more of what goes on behind the scenes. And fighters who may seem awesome actually have some major problems. I think that's true for any line of work, right? People seem, what do they say? Never meet your idols, right? Never meet your idol. Uh, ignoring the negative side for a record, are there any fighters you can confirm are as awesome as they come across? Uh <laughs> Someone writes Rich Franklin. I've actually never interacted with Rich Franklin beyond phoners. Um, I don't really know him in any kind of way to to say that that's true or not, although it stands to reason it's true. You know what's funny? Should I tell this story? Yeah, I guess I should. Um, do I have my phone on me? Oh, I left it downstairs. All right, well, you all can confirm with him this is true whenever he begins to do media. So uh, Nate Diaz had a media or uh, posted on social media last night, right? So like a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is a true story. I didn't tell anybody this. Well, okay. So I'm texting my my one of my friends, Nate. And uh, I'm like, oh, dude, I got a story to tell you. Like something. And on text. I forgot exactly how I worded it. And then I there was no immediate response. And so I put the phone in my pocket and I sat back down. You know, and I, this, I forget. Oh, yeah, I was on the train. And I, I'd had like, you know, a few beers at this point. I wasn't, you know, I was just, I was done with work for the most part and I was not thinking. So texting a friend, I'm, no harm there, right? And I didn't get a response. And I was like, that's kind of weird. Usually this, this person's quick. And I looked at my phone and there's a text from Nate Diaz. And it says, <clears throat> I'm not kidding. Who dis? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. 
I texted Nate Diaz. Oh no, God, what have I done? You know, not like I texted any kind of state secret. I was more just like, dude, I got a story to tell. You know, but still, it was just embarrassing. I was like, oh, for crying out loud, right? Last thing, and and I'm not even sober, so I'm not even sure how to like assess how bad the damage is. But in the end, it was nothing. But at the time, you know, you're like, oh, for crying out loud, right? And then I'm like, uh, all right, so I'm like. You know, real sorry, Nate. Apologies. Um, I meant to text somebody else. Have a great night. My sincere mistake. Sorry for any, um, you know, sorry for bothering you, basically. And <laughs> like five minutes passes and he goes, well, tell me your story. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like he, he texts like like an ear emoji or something. And he wanted me to tell him the story. And I, I gave him, you know, some sort of basic generalizations. I didn't get too far into anything, but. Uh, this went on for like five minutes, five minutes. He's like giving me details, you know, and he's giving me like advice on how to handle something. And I, and I'm just like, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. This is like hilarious. And then at the end, he was just like, you know, have a good night. Here's my point about it all without divulging the context of the conversation, other than to say, you know, I, I, as a drunk idiot, text him something by accident and he took it and ran with it and was really kind of cool with it. I've always had really good interactions with Nate Diaz. Um, I know people are polarized about him because he called himself the real champ and everyone's like, oh, you know, he's, you know, loses every third fight. I'm going to be the champ. And then everyone else like, you know, Stockton 209. And, I, you know, I don't really get hyped into either camp about that. All I can say is uh, every time I've interacted with Nate when the cameras were not running, um, he's a great guy. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, he's always been cool. He's always been completely cool. And he handled that one you know, uh, pretty well. And by the way, I, of course, when he was like, who this, I identified myself. I'm like, Oh, it's Luke Thomas. Sorry. And he was like, yeah, in the end, he was like, it's no problem. But I thought that was really funny at the time, you know, I'm sitting there on a train t drunk texting Nate Diaz about some story I had to tell. So enjoy that one. Um, but that was kind of fun. Nate Diaz is great. Uh, cup Swanson's great. Um, who else is good? There's a bunch of people that actually are good. Uh, Clay Guida is good, for what I know. I mean, I know some of these guys like other people. Um, I'm trying to think. Like, uh, Frankie Edgar's good. Um, who else is good that I really know that I can say confidently? I think they're good. There's a bunch of other ones. I'm sure I just can't remember. But enjoy that Nate Diaz drunk text story because that was funny. All right. Drinking tea today. Okay, speaking of Nate Diaz. Hi, look, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Last night, Nate Diaz posted on Instagram, quote, sick of sitting around waiting for you effers to do S. There's no excitement in this fight, S. Step your games up. I'll see you around May or June. Sincerely, the real champ. And the real champ is all capitalized. Uh, do you have any details all about this? Who's he fighting, etc.? Am I crazy in thinking that it lines up nicely for him to fight Connor? And the winner of Connor and Nate fights the winner of Tony and Habib. All the best from Ireland. You know what's interesting about this? Okay, my understanding is it's not necessarily related to Connor at all. Like, obviously, you can never exclude that, but that his desire to return is just a desire to return. It's not a desire to return necessarily for that purpose. That's my understanding. So I think he is open to other bouts. Um, and not just one, but maybe a couple of them. Well, let's make sure this is. Yeah, okay. Everything's good. Um, so that's my understanding. But here's the truth of the matter. 
Does anybody really know even the various players themselves? I don't even know who the lightweight champion is. Well, I guess it's Connor right now, but what's it going to be after UFC 223? What's it going to be? There's, there's a total lack of clarity about all of this. And so I don't know. I, I, like Part of this feels like the UFC is using this bout as a way to draw McGregor out, in which case if he comes out, what kind of demands is he going to make? How are those demands going to fit or not fit? With what Nate Diaz is or isn't doing, like you can see, like there's a lot of different moving parts here that are completely up in the air. It's not the dominoes are not lined up so that if you hit it this way, it will fall a certain way. I, I don't think even the various players involved, including the UFC, even really know exactly how this is going to go. So, is it related to Connor? I mean, almost everything in that division is related to Connor and Nate in particular. It would be foolish to tell you that that wouldn't be a part of it. It's just that my understanding is that um, there are probably motivations beyond just Connor that Nate has. But, you know, Christ on crutches, I don't – who the hell knows what's about to happen? I, I guess I, we know for sure that Habib is going to fight Nate, knock on wood, all things – or I'm sorry, Habib's going to fight um, Tony uh, at UFC 223 in Brooklyn. Again, knock on wood, we'll see how that goes. But beyond that, I – I honestly don't know what to tell you. I, I I don't think they know. And if they don't know, how the hell could I possibly know? I mean, there's probably some designs out there, but this is so weird and so uncertain and so confusing and so, frankly, unusual. We're usually talking about an organization that has that is real tidy for the most part that um, you know has some order about the way they like to do business. And I don't really feel like we're doing that here at all. At all. So, yeah, that should be fun. Uh, McGregor stripped leads to DS3. How, Luke, any chances McGregor is stripped of his belt and can use that as an approach to label some abuse towards the UFC, giving him a public enemy, and then take a match versus Diaz as a tune-up fight? I can see him selling the fight just like that before he attempts to get his belt back. Sure. Uh, I think being stripped perfectly suits McGregor's personality as it won't affect him, but give him further material to fuel his pressers before his next fight. It also means a Nate rematch is uh, more likely as there would have been a lot of public outcry and fighter disapproval if Nate got a title shot um, right away. Or do you think Nate's message last night meant he will challenge for Connor's belt whilst Khabib and Tony fight out the interim. I, I have a very strong sense that that's not going to happen, that they'll put that Nate will jump the queue and do that. I don't think that's true. Again, uh, God only knows. But for sure, I think that the point about being stripped is right on the money, right? So um, Chuck Mendenhall has always made really good points about what defines uh, McGregor's career up to this point is always escalation. And at some point, when you reach the top of the game, how do you really escalate? Well, you go to another sport. And in some ways, he did escalate um, his profile even from that. But competitively, it was not met with a ton of success. Um, but one thing that he could do is he always likes to have an axe to grind or a point to make or a frame to define a fight. Right? There's always a certain, there's a certain way that he likes to view things that... Is the is the defining feature of a fight that he's involved in, and uh, I, I think if he were stripped, he would say this is a way for him to still aspire to something. While to your point, having an axe to grind. While to your point and my point, having a way to frame 
the larger conversation about his return. You know, he could still say no one ever beat me. Now, of course, there'd be some retorts to that. Like, well, it's hard to beat a guy who doesn't defend his title. But nevertheless, it would it would be of some benefit to him, um, I think, personally and for, as a storyline as well. Now, I don't think the UFC is going to strip him just to create a storyline. I think it's a secondary consequence of, of a larger um, effort that they're making. But, but sure, I, I, I think it still preserves some of the mechanisms by which he has propelled himself and some of the mechanisms by which he, um, you know, he likes to conduct his business, right? You can still, it's not escalation exactly, but it's, it's still, it's still reaching for something. You've had your title taken away. You're, you're going back to reclaim things. The King is returning kind of a feel right now. If he loses in the end, of course, that framing was never, um, the right one, but but you can understand why he might want to do it that way. Not 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 that he wants to get stripped, but you know, if you're going to get stripped because you didn't defend in a certain time frame, um, what is what is a way to look at this scenario? As you know, Connor's big on visualization. That's one part of it. I think he's also big on his own narrative. He likes to be the hero of his own story, and what better way to be the hero of your own story than by ha- being stripped not once but twice? People doubting you. Yeah, sure, you made a lot of money, but you went over to boxing and, you know, you had a decent run over there for all intents and purposes, but you lost in the end. You got stopped in the end. MMA kind of not moved on, but in some ways, like, I mean, I guess moved on a little bit, right? Um, and now it's your turn to come back and remind everyone what time it is. I think he, he might like to see it that way if it goes. I mean, I don't, again, I don't think he wants to get stripped, but should he get stripped, he might see himself as like a bit of a Count of Monte Cristo. Roy Jones Jr., y'all must have forgot kind of thing. Um, but we'll have to see in the end. But, you know, are, are they doing this? Like, people are thinking, well, are they just bringing back Nate to lure Connor back? And what kind of implication does that have for Tony versus Habib? That seems a bit... Uh, that seems a bit too involved as a plot. I don't even... Again, I don't even think they know. I don't even think they know. And again, my my what I've been told is that uh, certainly Connor is always in play, but that it's not strictly about him why Nate is coming back. Uh, what's next for Stipe? Ongoing feud with Dana slash UFC. After his dominant dismantling, excuse me, dismantling of one of the most dangerous contenders on Saturday, where does Stipe go next? Dana seems keen on Stipe, Stipe versus DC. I personally like that fight, but DC might turn it down since Kane is back. How about Stipe versus Kane, or maybe Stipe versus Verdum rematch? What would you prefer, and what would you think the UFC will do? And how will the ongoing feud between Stipe and UFC and Dana White affect what happens next? I don't think the feud will have much to do with it. Um, credit to Jonathan Snowden, who I thought had a really good point, which is no one really ever gets famous from feuding with Dana. In fact, it's sort of a bit of a black hole. I mean, for a time... You can get some attention from it. But in the end, it's not really a winning strategy to get ahead. And I don't think that Stipe is thinking like, gee, what's a strategy to get ahead? I'll feud with Dana. I think he is. Whenever Stipe acts for better or for worse, it's probably how he really feels. So I don't I don't believe that he's like, you know, concocting a scheme or something. Um, but just as a, uh, if you know, if past his prologue, then there's reason to believe that doing that won't really benefit him as a popular attraction going forward. Um, I've always been of the belief now, and especially after Saturday, I think the returns on the pay-per-view are going to be somewhere in the twos, somewhere in the low to mid twos, um, which is, which is some ways disappointing, some ways understandable. Um, 
I wonder what it would have done for Nganu if he had won. But here's the point. Stipe is always going to be more popular for what he represents than what he says. You know, he just is not he's not going to be that guy that goes out there and says a lot of super awesome things like McGregor. Now McGregor comes to be both in certain ways, but you get the you get the idea. He's just not that guy. I don't think he's ever really going to be that guy. He's always going to be with his words, at least in public. Less is more. He appears to be a little bit of a different story behind the scenes. Um, and I think um, you know Scott Harris had a good piece in Bleacher Report to that effect. But um, just to be clear about this, I think Jonathan Snowden's right. I don't think that there is a path to heightened popularity feuding with Dana like this. It certainly adds some layers to who Stipe is. It certainly adds some intrigue about the, the precise nature of their not seeing eye to eye. Um, but Stipe doesn't really go actively in details. He sort of acknowledges that there's some distance between them and a non-overlapping worldview about him, but doesn't do much beyond that. I, I just kind of feel like unless Stipe fights a Brock Lesnar or something, uh, or somehow the rest of the sports world catches on to the fact that the UFC heavyweight champion is a hero first responder. I mean, I don't know how else you want to describe him. I, I don't know what meaningfully he can do at this point. He's 35 years old. Um, you know, the Modelo Especial, I think, uh, um, sponsorship in some ways will heighten his visibility. But you have to understand his story for all of that to matter. And that can't happen unless there's some other kind of hook that lets the wider world know. And feuding with Dana ain't going to be it. So my thought was, if Brock Lesnar comes back, now I don't want to give Brock Lesnar a title shot right away. Uh, but I'm just thinking out loud here, abstractly, if Stipe fought Brock Lesnar, that might do a lot for Stipe. Now, no guarantees, of course. We'd have to see how the fight is promoted and everything else, but that, that could be something big for him uh, in the same way it was big for many others. Not Maybe not the exact same it was for Cain Velasquez when he won, but something like that. I think that's really what's needed. You know, He has to get... People have to figure out who he is. And even Ronda, same thing. People figured out that there was something special about her, at least... When she was on that ascent, and then she had a big mouth, and I don't say that in a pejorative way, although the Sandy Hook truther stuff was pretty unsavory. But generally speaking, she just had a lot of strong opinions about the world, and 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 people people responded to that, right? And there was this, you know, she was winning in this incredible ways, and you know, she wasn't some prototypical, you know, shoulder hunched, um, you know, eighty four kilo Olympic weightlifter kind of build um you know she was reasonably attractive and all those things put together kind of made for a really compelling story Stipe lacks some of those things and there's nothing wrong with that not everybody can be everything to everybody I just mean how else like his story has been told at this point now not to enough audiences but the question is based on the audiences that have been receptive to this point that's the decision they've made about him how do you get into that next level I think you have to have somebody shine a bigger spotlight down on him and you can say well the UFC hasn't done that they have and they haven't we've talked about that before I think getting a Lesnar fight might do a lot for him so if you really care about Stipe maybe that's the way you look a Verdum fight is fine I do think there is some rematch fatigue both in the heavyweight and light heavyweight division and everyone's like what's next for Cormier is it going to be Gustafson personally I'm in favor of that fight I know a lot of folks aren't What's going to be next for Stipe? Some folks say Verdum. I'm okay with that fight. I know some folks aren't. There's a debate to be had about that. Just remember this. What is the UFC pushing right now? 
they're pushing. First of all, I, I, uh, again, I'm just sort of shouting out journalists here, but Mike Bond made this point previously that it used to be the case where they would never allow crossover fights between divisions. Make sure that didn't affect my uh, sound. Check, check. Yeah, okay, we're good. It used to be the case where uh, um, you had to clean out a division several generations over before they ever like entertained the idea of you crossing to a division. Now it's like, man, eh, no big deal. Um, that's to me, this is dangerous, very dangerous. It's not that in a in a again an abstract sense. Hey, would a fight between DC and Stipe be awesome? Yeah, it'd be awesome. Who the hell's going to tell you it's not a good fight? course it'd be a good fight and i think it'd be competitive to be quite honest dc might even win um now maybe you still favor steep that's fine I'm not, I'm not here to talk about how the fight would go other than to say i think it would be probably you know there's reasons to believe it would be competitive but it's that's happening at the very same time that they want the 135 pound female champ to fight the 145 pound female champ that's happening at the same time that they're encouraging the 135 pound champ to drop down and fight the 125 pound champ. They are actively encouraging crossovers in ways that could wreak havoc on divisions, depending on outcomes and depending on injuries, which by the way, are in the first case, uh, hard to anticipate. And in the second case, um, a problem to deal with once they happen. It, this to me, feels like they're playing a much bigger game. No one is against the notion that a Daniel Cormier versus Stipe Miocic fight wouldn't be fun. What I'm against is that it, is that we can't just look at it just like this and not pretend the wider world exists. In the wider world, the UFC is actively encouraging these fights that could cause substantial problems for their divisions. And for that reason, I'm against it. It's not that I'm like, oh my God, I've got to see a rematch between DC and Gustafson. I'm happy to see it. I think it'd be a fun fight. Same for Stipe and Verdum. It'd be kind of, I mean, less so on that one, but it'd be kind of interesting, I guess. And I don't think either of those fights are as necessarily interesting as DC versus Stipe. The problem is they are trying, it appears, or they're they're just not being very good stewards of their own divisions, which I find both baffling and worrying at the same time. So for those reasons, I'm against it. I understand, though, that if you're a fan, you're thinking to yourself, well, I care about what fight makes me the most interested and DC versus Stipe is that. I get it. You are taking a short-term satisfaction to create long-term problems. Don't be the guy or the lady who says, I want DC versus Stipe. That's fine. That's fine if you want it. Or DJ TJ. Or 135-145 uh, crossing over for the women's side. That's fine if individually all those ones are the ones you want. But if as a consequence of making those, the divisions get wrecked and they create yet more interim titles down the line, to compensate for this Pandora's box that they're opening, what you have to say is not only, not only am I in favor of DC Stipe or the various other fights as well, on top of that, I'm okay with the costs that might come down the line associated with it, including interim titles and including champions who could be out for prolonged periods of time for any number of different reasons or divisions being held up because TJ wins and then doesn't go back down and defend it and has to drop it and all this nonsense. You have to say you're also okay with that because those things could quite easily come with it and so as a consequence, accept it. Uh, good question. Lack of depth on pay-per-view. Yeah, boy. Good Lord. Luke, can you explain the recent lack of depth on pay-per-view cards at the moment? UFC 220, UFC 221, and UFC 222, potentially UFC 223, although that one stands to reason that it might be better, but have great, intriguing, and well-matched fights at the top of the card to lower in the paying customer. Agreed. 
The main events, by and large, UFC 220, Stipe versus Francis is the main event. Great. UFC 221, Luke Rockhold versus Joel Romero. That's not as good as Luke Rockhold versus Robert Whitaker, but hey, that's a solid fight. UFC 222, Max versus Fra Frankie. All in, right? All in. UFC 223, I don't have to say anything about that. Tony versus Habib. It's maybe one of the greatest fights in the history of the UFC, to be quite honest. So all the headliners are solid, super solid. And again, we'll see with 223, but down the line, oh my God, it is a significant drop-off. Uh, they seem to offer little else underneath. However, Fight Night, Fox, FS cards of late seem to lack true star power at the top billing, but seem to have uh, a bit more in terms of close fights, intriguing matchups, but with fighters a little bit down the rankings. The latest event was Stevens versus KSB, Korean Superboy, especially had five to six intriguing fights for the hardcores. What is the reason for this? Is this in order for the UFC to satisfy the cable companies who know they can't have big names, so they offer them quality fights and use it as a high-profile platform to build contenders? This one's pretty simple, folks. There's been a, a okay, two, two prop, well, three problems I want to identify. Number one, there are too many fighters and too many cards. I've been saying it for years. It took a while for this to sink in, but now folks are fundamentally realizing it. How? Ask yourself a question. How many fighters in a calendar year can the UFC effectively promote, right? There's The UFC has a certain amount of dollars, a certain amount of people working, and a certain set of goals and ambitions and responsibilities, right? All of that, they have that. It's a finite organization with finite resources. So in your mind, come up with a number. How many fighters, given that finite space, now that's powerful, but it's finite, can they reasonably promote? I'm going to say the answer is probably less than 50, maybe even less than that. That's how many they can effectively promote. Now, they can moderately promote some. They can barely promote others. They can totally ignore a bunch of others. But I'm talking about 10% of the roster they can promote. Not a high number, okay? Effectively, very effectively promote. Not a high number, not a high number at all, all right? And even that 50 might be generous. Now, you add in the fact that that's, again, 10% of the roster. That's one problem. The other problem is, and this is, uh, I think they've had way too many weight classes. You know, adding a woman's flyweight sounds nice. It sounds nice. I don't think in the end this is good for the product, at least at this stage of the game's development, right? Uh, here's something to consider. Any weight class that is added uh, where it's people say, oh, we should add a weight class because it would help with weight cutting, Right. If you do that, what you're saying is not only are we, I mean, any weight class added to alleviate problems with weight cutting, not only has that fact as its defining purpose, it has that fact as its sole appeal. If you're adding a weight class because you're trying to alleviate problems with weight cutting, that's really the beginning and end of its popularity. It's just there to do that. How popular is it? About that popular. Certainly at first, and maybe over time, people can grow into it. And maybe you want to take an L early to develop things over time. My guess is you should wait until you're bursting at the seams in certain divisions before you do that. Otherwise, I don't know what kind of benefit it has. So there's too many fighters, too many events, and frankly, there's too many weight classes. We have to come to terms with this. They, can't, they cannot reasonably promote everybody that they have or even a fraction of what they have effectively given how many cities they go to, how often they're on television, uh, and given their finite resources, both in terms of the fans' attention, the media's ability to cover it, uh, as well as promotional work, 
be, uh, earned media, uh, paid media, you name it. It's just not possible. So this is one, one major component. There's another major component here that you have homed in on, which is the WME effect. It is pretty clear at this point, and I didn't, it's crazy. I don't know if this is an inevitability or not, but remember like weeks and weeks ago, I think sometime late last year, I said, and maybe on this chat, maybe on the beat, like, I can't keep them straight anymore. But I was like, we spent all this time talking about how the rules of MMA were different. We're going to look at the blueprint of boxing. You know, we'll take what worked, but we're going to go the other way on everything else because we're going to do the opposite of that. We're not going to have cards where it's just one or two fights at the top and then, you know, it's just a card full of nubs and donks and no one cares. Uh, and now slowly over time, and that's just one frontier. There are many frontiers where the UFC is and MMA is slowly morphing into boxing. The money fire thing is another component of that. And people wanting to just sort of ignore weight classes or how people jump them is another one too. But there's many, there's many fault lines where we're talking about this, but this is another one. It is pretty clear to me that WME is saying to themselves, okay, we have a certain amount of calendars, uh, uh items that we have to match. For pay-per-view, we can probably reel in people if we just put a good main and if we can, a good co-main. And the Fight Nights and the Fox cards, a good main probably can do that, but we'll stack those because we need to give them, not bang for your buck since it's free, but we need to pack that with enough value that we can draw enough eyeballs on television. Because if we have Habib versus Tony, it doesn't matter who else we have down the line. People are going to pay for that. And oh, by the way, the pay-per-view increase if we're going to have declining pay-per-views, but we still have a decent audience, if we modestly increase the price, we can offset some of the drop in pay-per-view enthusiasm. By the way, you should also know that Dana White said this past week that the last year was their best financial year, which again is sort of an acknowledgement that that was a bit of a financial Ouija board, sleight of hand kind of thing. Uh, in any case, that's what's happening here. I think on pay-per-view, they're saying to themselves, let's put on legitimate, no bull-ass headliners, and you can't say anything about the headliners for UFC 220, very little for 221, nothing for 222, and definitely nothing for 223. And again, some of those cards might fill out if they if the calendar works out in such a way or the city works out in such a way where they really want to build it. Remember those new November New York cards? That card might not just have three top fights at the top of them. It might have a decent um, card all the way down. I don't know that it's going to be a, a hard and fast rule every single time. Uh, in fact, that Fox card with Stevens and Emmett at the, is not is not you know, it's not like a car where it's like filled with value all the way down. It's okay. But I think that's what's happening. If it's a free show, they're going to pack it with enough to make sure that people just turn their head and look. And if it's a, it's a paid show, they're going to put a crown jewel up there. So impressive that you won't want to look away, but they're going to fill the rest of that with just the roster space they have. And the rest of that roster space exists strictly to fund shows everywhere else. I mean, people talking about this UFC London show, if they had a good main event, It'd be okay. No, that card's not great. It's really not great. There's a bunch of fights on there that don't need to be happening at this level at all. Um, but they have too many fighters. They have too many shows. And they have uh, too many commitments. So it says, uh, it's, all, it's a green comment. Just chiming in to say that I hate, and they put it in bold, the fact that 220 and these upcoming pay-per-view cards lack depth. If you're going to charge me $65 for a pay-per-view, I want five great matchups. That means titles on the line, top contender fights, and basically every single fighter on the main card should be ranked. They put 3-0 Cynthia Calvillo on the main card of a 209, and then again at 210 as a 4-0 fighter. Fair play to Cynthia, but I thought that was S as a paying customer. Yeah, I understand that completely. 
I understand that completely. Now, she was filling on late notice, I think, on the first two of her fights. But um, but I understand your point. I understand your point. Like, you're looking for, you know, no-nonsense value. You can't. G- given how many participants there are at a high enough level to sign that can reasonably win enough, that can be from enough regions where you can then explore the, the planet a little bit geographically, uh, meet your Fox commitments, meet overseas commitments, um, take the product international in terms of shows and live events in as much as you want to, you have to reach a certain level of the game where that kind of fighter exists. You got to sign a bunch of them because you got to fill the card. Or another thing they could do is they could chop the number of fights on a card in half. That'd be another way you could do it, right? There's some other wet meth- methods they have to change. Their go- but the problem is they've got this new reality with this old architecture. We're going to have five fights or six on the main card. We're going to have four for free on TV. And we're going to go on Fight Pass. Well, that was great when you had enough fighters that people cared about to fill those ranks. Now you don't. Now you don't. Too many weight classes, too many fighters, too many shows. Simple as that. And you have a WME who has bizarre priorities. This is hilarious. Speaking of Calvijo, is Luke going to keep pronouncing her name incorrectly? She herself introduces herself as Calvillo, not Calvijo. There's a couple of videos of her on YouTube pronouncing her name. Don't die on this hill, Luke. The woman wants what her name is. So let's have this debate again because people will just keep, y'all keep wanting me to, to dunk on you, and I have no problems doing it. Let me ask you a question. How do you pronounce the city in Colombia spelled M-E-D-E-L-L-I-N? How do you pronounce that? What's the answer there? Is it Medellin? Is it Medellin? Because I can tell you if you go to Colombia, where the city is, by the way, it's pronounced Medellin. So for your theory to be correct, right, where the only acceptable pronunciation is the one that person says about that double L as a Y as a J, that means Cynthia Calvillo would have to pronounce Medellin, Medellin. But if you go to certain parts of Mexico, in fact, wide swaths of it, that's not what they do. Here's the fact. There are certain commonalities and and uh, traits to the Spanish language that don't change no matter where you go, whether that's Honduras, Colombia, Argentina, Spain, even. For example, if a word starts with the letter R, they trill it. R. If it has two R's together, they trill it. That is common throughout the Spanish-speaking world. But the two L's as the Y as the J is not incorrect at all. That is a dialect that is totally, not a dialect even, that's just a um, a method of pronunciation common to that part of the world that is not in any way incorrect. And if it was incorrect, uh, or rather, if your theory was correct, then everyone from that part of the world would have to change their pronunciation for Medellin and vice versa, you see? So it doesn't work that way. Plus, we had we had native, not, not fluent, native Spanish speaker, Danny Segura on After the Beat, who explained this to all you dummies. Look at me closely. There are a number of different ways you can pronounce the double L in Spanish. If you go to Argentina, they say it like a sh. They pronounce it medicine. Bet you didn't know that. You want to go to you want to go to Buenos Aires and correct them? It is not true. It is not true that you the only pronunciation for that is Calvillo. Calvillo is not incorrect. It might be her preferred method of pronunciation and that's fine if she asked me personally to accommodate her in that way i wouldn't go around it just so you dummies know however the two l's as a y as an english j 
is perfectly acceptable. There's a reason you don't hear Mexicans say Medellin. They say Medellin because that's the type of Spanish that they speak. That is not the only kind of Spanish. There's another kind throughout South America, obviously near to the city it's in, in Colombia, for example, they say Medellin. Everywhere in Colombia, nobody says Medellin. Not in Cartagena, not in Cali, not in Pereira, not in Villa de Leva. By the way, another city with two L's, they also pronounce the same goddamn way. Trust me when I tell you this. I'm right. You're wrong. You need to move on on this one. I'm 100% right. There are commonalities to the Spanish language that don't change on geography. The two L's as the Y as the English J, 100% ain't one of them. 100%. Ask any linguist, and they will tell you, I am correct. I have done my homework on this one. You haven't. One says, that's a straw man. We don't argue some people don't pronounce it like that, but she chooses to. I'm not telling her how to pronounce her name. I'm not telling you she has to say it, Calvijo. I'm telling you I'm not wrong for pronouncing it Calvijo. That is an entirely acceptable pronunciation of the, of the use of the Spanish language. It is without a doubt, without a doubt, justified. It's not a straw man. I'm not lecturing her about her own Spanish language. I'm telling you dummies, you don't know the Spanish language, to tell me that that's not acceptable. Plenty, plenty, plenty of Spanish speakers far beyond uh, Mexico will pronounce it that way. In fact, there might be, in terms of the number of millions, more that do it that way. You're wrong. You're flat out 100% wrong. Nate Diaz, come back. In a recent Instagram post, Nate Diaz teased that he was ready to fight again in May, June. Sources close to him say, he is serious about this. What do you make of this? We've already been over this. Uh, now that Habib and Tony are booked for April, the winner won't fight Connor before September. That gives Nate a window of May, June, which is the one, of course, he identified. Eddie Alvarez and Kevin Lee were quick to call out Nate on Twitter. But do you think Nate is interested? If you were the UFC and Nate was in the mix, how would you match up the top lightweights? The Eddie Alvarez fight sounds like a lot of fun, but I think Eddie will just wrestle him. So if that's what you all are into... It's a fine fight. I wouldn't I wouldn't be at all mad about it, but that doesn't really get me all that excited necessarily. Kevin Lee might wrestle him too, but Kevin Lee, I think uh, with Nate's guard, if it was a main event and a five-round fight, that kind of changes it up a little bit. I think that could be kind of interesting. Uh, the Justin Gaethje fight is the one that really interests me. I know Justin Gaethje is sort of scheduled for Dustin Poirier, but that would Dustin Poirier would be another good one. Um, all those would be good. Poir Poirier and... Um, Poirier and... Um, and uh, Gaethje, those would be my top two choices. And then, of course, you know, Tony Nathan uh, or Tony Connor and Habib. But that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that. So, but yeah, I think those two would be my favorite choices is Poirier and uh, uh, and um, Anthony Pettis, maybe too. Um, and uh, but he's a little bit down the line. But yeah, uh, it, so let's say this Gaethje, Poirier, my probably top two choices. Maybe third, Kevin Lee, fourth, Eddie Alvarez, and then whatever the hell happens at the top of the division. But th those are just. Those are just my preferences. Like, I don't know. I can't tell you that they're better. If you have a better idea, by all means, speak up. Rockhold news. Uh, Luke, a while back, you hinted at some major Rockhold news, which seemed to be unrelated to his fight career. In the past 10 days, 
Rockhold hinted at some problems in the Bay Area when speaking on the MMA Hour, and DC mentioned, quote, what Luke has been through at home in his post-fight interview on Saturday. It would be naive of me to expect you to divulge the news. Uh, does it have anything to do with him moving to Miami to train with Henry Hoof? No, that has nothing to do with it. In fact, all the, what I understood was like a great thing for him. If he's having problems at uh, San Jose or, or whatever's happening in California, that, I, don't know, I don't know anything about that, to be honest, and wouldn't claim to, and... I don't. I don't know what that is. I, don't, I have no clue what that is. So, um, I hope it's okay. Uh, but I don't know. I really don't know. Nganu Helwani interview. Trump comments fighters and politics leading up to Nganu versus Stipe. Ariel Helwani asked Nganu about Donald Trump's s hole comments. It was a relevant question since Nganu was from a country Trump would label an s hole. But Helwani was criticized by some for mixing politics and sports. It's obviously nothing new that athletes make political statements, but recently a number of NBA and NFL players have done so. What are your thoughts on asking fighters about political issues? It would be nice to hear Amanda Nunez's talk about marriage equality, but imagine the S-storm if Helwani asked Tyron Woodley about Black Lives Matter. Right. What do you think, if it's relevant, uh, uh, if it's relevant is it okay? Athletes have a platform to make a difference, so why not? Or... Should we keep MMA a relatively politics-free zone? I think it's the second. We should keep it relatively politics-free. I don't think you can keep it um, completely politics-free. Let me give you guys some good news. It appears that the media and the fighters, well, the fighters less so, but at least on certain issues, the media and the fighters kind of align to the, well, to, this is my left, but your left, I guess would be this side. I don't know. I don't know. My left is this side. They align slightly to the left on certain issues, in some cases way to the left. But you get the idea that not, not in totality. I mean, you get guys like Tim Kennedy who, you know, is friends with the guy behind InfoWars. But there are some issues where there's like some like-mindedness in that way. And I think there's a lot of the fan base that is a bit on the other direction that don't appreciate that. I have some good news for you. Uh, I don't know when it's going to happen, but it is an inevitability that um, – and I'll get to this in a second. I thought Ariel's question was just fine. But I know a lot of you don't. And I know there's a lot of conservative types that don't like these questions. And if what has happened in uh, sports media is any kind of indication, what's going to happen in MMA media is eventually there is going to come around somebody who is an articulate, reasonable communicator, not merely of conservative thinking as it relates to sports, but as something of a anti-liberal media bias check. So, for example, Clay Travis. Now, Clay Travis has had some dumbass ideas about, he was like, Mayweather should fight Ronda Rousey. You know, this needs to happen. It's like, okay, well, maybe fight sports isn't exactly your forte, but he has amassed a certain degree of popularity because there are some people, no doubt about it, and I think to some extent they're correct, that believe there has been not merely an introduction of left-wing politics into sports or ESPN or, you know, whatever his... Um, and when Jason Whitlock has talked talked about this as well, but I, thought, I think Jason Whitlock is less of an effective communicator because he has such an axe to grind about ESPN. But in any case, Clay Travis has amassed a certain degree of popularity about this because he can cover college and let's say uh, the NFL, college football in the NFL, to a degree where people can trust some of his judgments about those things, you know, give or take. And then on top of that, they really like the fact that he acts as something of a media bias. And I really have no problem with that either. Uh, I don't, some of his issues are correct. Um, some of them are not. Some of them are just total imagination. But uh, it's good to have that kind of balance. Somebody like that is going to come along 
in MMA. And they're going to check things I say, and they're going to check things Ariel does, and they're going to check things, you name it. They're going to check a bunch of us in the process. That's probably a good thing. That's probably a good thing. Um, I have no problems with that. Here's the only thing that that tells me. That doesn't tell me that people don't want politics and sport. Now, at some point, they want a, a, a firewall there, right? Like, we're not asking, you know, whose fault is it that they're, or I should say, um, you know, Francis, what do you think about um, um, the S-chip program? Are you really, can you believe this has uh, gone un unfunded? Or, you know, um, you know, what is, where is, uh, Francis, where is Trump's uh, infrastructure plan? You know, th things like that where you be, I mean, it's almost, it would seem absurd to even include it in the conversation. But at a time where there's an heightened interest on immigration, at a time where there's a, a greater attention being paid to um, the notion of nationalities um, clashing and crashing into each other, even in sport, uh, and given that the, and Trump himself has engaged in talk about the NBA um, players have spoken out against him. He's spoken out against uh, the NFL players who kneel and so forth. I mean, he's this is a guy who tried to buy an NFL team and couldn't get one, which I think is a big part of all of this. Like the worlds are intertwined. They're not so intertwined where you know we need um, the latest Paul Felder report on what he saw on C-SPAN. That of course would be you know grossly over the top. The the bigger issue to me is I think once there's a balance. Whereas somebody like a Clay Travis is involved in MMA, I think a lot of these claims and worries that these people have will die down. Ariel's question was about Donald Trump's comments. I don't. The president has has inserted himself into the sporting world. He spoke out against Jamil Hill, and, and, and every other thing I've already mentioned before. It's not out of balance to talk about that. It's just not. It's a big part of it. Uh, I get that you may not like some of his answers, and that's fine too. You don't have to like what Nganu had to say. I'm not. I'm not requiring you to do that. I'm really. You're asking me. Was that question out of bounds? No. And then on top of that, the good news is the more that there's resentment built around this kind of thing, even if I feel like that resentment is misplaced, the more it's going to give rise to somebody or somebodies who are going to act as a check against that in a public way. And what that will tell you, of course, is that it's not really true that people don't want politics. What most people want, what most people really want in this world is they want their views and worldview confirmed for them. They want it fed back to them. Uh, and, and, um, there is, if you got that more readily, whether you're left or you're right, um, from somebody in a public space who could like, you know, credibly talk about fighting and then also be like, this is an insane introduction of idiotic left-wing politics into a discussion where it has no business. And you guys would, some of you guys anyway, would fist pump that. I really have no issue with that at all. To be quite honest, that doesn't mean I'll accept all the various criticisms, but that kind of a role to me seems inevitable at this point. And, um, and I think that's okay. All right. Conor McGregor, will he be stripped or not? Hmm. Uh, the rather confusing UFC 223 presser, we learned that Habib versus Tony is for the undisputed title, but at the same time, Conor has not been stripped. What's your take on this? Is this part of putting pressure on Conor, part of keeping UFC's value up in TV deals? Uh, yeah, so my sense is they don't want to strip Connor unless they have to, is basically the idea. Like, we're going to book this fight, and we're going to tell these guys it's for the undisputed title if you don't come back. And if you do come back, which I think they're basically betting that he won't, but I think what they need to do is draw a line in the sand and say, look, this is as far as we can go with this. Um, or maybe they're planning to have two titles at the same time. I don't really know, but that's my my my, my hunch anyway is that 
they're doing that. They're just drawing a line and they're saying, um, you know, anything past this and we'll be forced to act. They're calling his bluff or, you know, something of an ultimatum even. You know, I, I mean, a very limp-wristed ultimatum, but an ultimatum nevertheless. What happens if Connor commits to a fight against the winner in September? Will UFC 223 be for the interim title? What do you think of the UFC's handling of the situation? The handling at this point could not be worse. Um, there should have been absolute clarification about this. Both those guys signed a deal, apparently, in their bout agreements that gave them uh, no doubt about it. Um, that should have been for an undisputed title and the title, and that's what they're expecting. Uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen with here. I mean, in the end, if they come through on this, I think folks would be like, well, that was weird, but whatever. But what happens if Connor calls their bluff? Now what? Now he says, I'm going to come back. I'll be back. You know, I'll be back June or something right after Ramadan, right? And let's say Habib wins. Now what? Now what are you going to do? You know, um, and he commits to that, by the way, let's say by March. Um, now you've got a problem. you got a real problem. I don't, that does not appear likely. I guess they feel comfortable knowing that he probably won't do that. But it just to me feels like they're trying to find a way to delicately you know, what was that scene in Lord of the Rings where they are that dragon who has all the gold? Like they're trying to find that one stone without waking the dragon. It feels like that kind of thing, very surgical um, removal of that. And in the end, of course, they raised his ire anyway, but it's, it's something like that, right? So um, it's going to be bad if he comes back, but I guess they're confident enough that that's so unlikely that that won't happen. But, I mean, how do you do this to people? You know, these, these, are, these are these guys' lives. How do they not know what they're fighting for? It seems completely insane. And then Dana White's sort of thinking, well, everybody understands this. It's not hard to understand. No, it's it's pretty hard to understand. Either one necessitates the other. It's not possible for them to be fighting for the undisputed title if he's still got one. One necessarily means that the other doesn't. That's what that means. And so when you equivocate and you say, well, yes, it's for the undisputed title and Connor's not been stripped, you'll see this is chaos. This is organizational chaos. This is a, I mean, they're, I mean, I get it, I guess, right? They need him back in some kind of a way and they don't want to raise his ire to the point where he just walks, but wow, they created a monster, huh? You know, I'm not even blaming Connor at this point. He got what he earned, but wow. Uh, at some point, you have to bite the bullet and just say to yourself, some kind of structural integrity about all of this matters, even if it comes at some kind of a cost. Easy for me to say, of course, I don't run the organization, but I would I would imagine most of you would agree at that point. Like Having clarity about this is not just a matter of helping fans and media understand what's happening. It's a an organization in chaos is not a well-run organization. Now, I'm not saying the entire organization is chaos, far from it, but as it relates to this matter... It's a, it's a bit of a stain on the reputation as like efficient operators, right? To be able to like, to, to go forward with something like this, like ham-fisted and uncertain. It goes against everything you really know about them. Um, so not the end of the world, that'd be an exaggeration, but not good for sure. On a scale of one to Daniel, <laughs> one to Daniel Cormier, just how great is Daniel Cormier? Uh, he's Daniel Cormier. I put out a video about this. I just thought that um, one of the, you know beating Volkan Uzdemir 
was, you know, it's not easy, right? A lot of guys can't do it, but um, he, he did it fairly easily, which is you know, the fact that he's 38, 39 and doing this is kind of incredible. But but more to the point, the, the, the point I wanted to make was, um, you know, he had this incredibly bad moment at UFC 214 where not only does he lose to his rival in this you know, majorly career-defining fight, and he gets viciously KO'd, and then another time his opponent mismanages his career and you know again we'll figure out what happens with that but then he gets the belt back and it's like what do you what, how do you even understand all of this and by the way not only did you lose but your kid tried to console you he told the story about that and um you know and could there have been lasting psychological effects from being viciously finished that way and uh and he picked himself up and you know dusted himself off took a deep breath and got back in the training room and committed himself to 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 the next challenge and put enough pressure on himself to say that I considered it a vacant title challenge. Like the thing that always bothers me, people like Daniel's walking around acting like he's the champion. It's like Daniel didn't ask for a foil who puts himself in these positions where there no win, where you're carrying around a title because that's what should happen according to protocol, but that it is not happening under the most ideal circumstances of the ones that really confer the most reputational benefit. Like you didn't beat that guy. So you don't you, you don't get that reputational benefit, but yet you have this belt, and it sort of makes him look like a phony. But that's not he never asked for that. And you could say, well, reject the title, but then it has so much value as a bargaining tool um, and as a money maker for him, and he as a and as a guy who's a provider for his kids, that it makes no sense not to take it. So it puts him in these really bad positions that makes him look like he's just taking things he didn't earn. But I've never really I've never really bought into that. And I, and, and when he talked about beating Uzdemir as a as a reclaiming a vacant title. You could see that he wanted. He wants to earn things. He always wants to earn things. He never wants to take a shortcut uh, if he can avoid it, right? And for him to lose in that way, to not take a shortcut, to go back out there and fight the number one contender who's not going to necessarily make him a ton of money, right? This not, that was not a money fight by any stretch of the imagination. And to beat him the way he did, to show no lasting psychological effect, and to get in there, it was. I, I said before, it wasn't his greatest redemption, but from his greatest fall, he showed this not only high achievement in sport, but a, a total reflection of outstanding character. And the two together, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know Daniel Cormier. Like, we're not in any way friends. I mean, I know him professionally, but like, I don't know how you look at that and not almost feel like a sense of like pride for the guy. It's it, it, life is so hard. It is so hard. It is so hard. People will, the world will beat you down, man. It will, it will slap you and, and, and it will take from you and it will take from you irreparably certain ways and it will humiliate you and it will humble you. It doesn't matter if you're a fighter or a plumber or a firefighter or an accountant or whatever you are. It does not matter. Life will get in your way and it's hard to succeed and it's hard to get back up. And, and most people really can't do it. And to have your failure so public and to have those questions swirling about you or your legitimacy and to get up and to answer them and to show a high character at the same time is amazing it is amazing amazing most people when they have things that go bad in their life they turn bitter it becomes these soul-sucking um you know features to their own identity they lash out at the world and and become and become different people over time they, be, they become you know this husk of scar tissue and and sadness and he has never let himself at least in any way i can detect from this side um He's never let himself turn into that. It's really impressive. It's really, really impressive. Anybody in any line of work 
can take a lesson of Daniel Cormier's journey, not merely to UFC 214 and what happened at UFC 214, but what happened after it. You get up, you put the yoke on, and you pull it one more time, and you 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 just commit. You don't feel sorry for yourself, not for very long anyway, and 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 you just try and you just try again and you commit to yourself and you can be surprised at what you can achieve when you do that. You, anybody I mean, that could not be a better coach in wrestling, not merely because of what he knows from wrestling, but because the kind of character traits he can probably instill in those kids. You would be lucky as a parent to have Daniel Cormier train your kids. Uh, what's next for DC? As we mentioned before, I'm going to hope the Gus rematch. The Mauler, same question. Have you heard anything about him? I have not. It's probably going to be a better question for Ariel. The return of Kane. Hi, Luke. Hoping uh, 2018 is treating you well so far. I'm not sleeping very well, but what else is new? With Kane hoping to return this year, I assume you'd like to see him have a tune-up fight before taking on Stipe. Whom would you like to see him face? Ooh, good question. Um, maybe Mark Hunt. Maybe, maybe Mark Hunt. I think it'll be a fun one. Uh, another Verdum fight would be a good one, depending on how things go. But uh, sure, any of those. What's the deal with the Grockle and AKA? In terms of that, I don't know. I don't have the answers there. I've asked Javier Mendez about it, and they're like, hey, he's got our blessing to go do something else. I don't know what the answer is there. Good question here. Uh, Cyborg's social media stumbles. Cyborg apparently wants to come across as a fighting champion while establishing herself as a draw, which is great and should be applauded. However, while doing this, her Twitter account gets called out by Ansaroff about announcing a Nunes fight that hadn't even been offered to Nunes. Correct. After that, the account claims Megan Anderson has married for a visa while tagging immigration services on the tweet in response to Anderson basically just stating she wants another fight while waiting for Cyborg to be available. And I know that Cyborg's boyfriend runs the Twitter account, but Cyborg is responsible for that content. Agreed. You have stated that Cyborg doesn't have anyone defending them in the media, which I partially agree with when it comes to the PED accusations. But isn't it also fair to say, based on stuff like this, that Cyborg herself is responsible for the negative image when it comes to stuff like this? 100%. She is not doing herself any favors. And I think, who was it before? Um, God, who was it when they, she said, or whoever ran the Twitter account, whether it was Ray Elby or not, Ray Elb, to go after someone's uh, restaurant or, or business with a negative Yelp reviews. Who was that? Uh, or was it maybe negative Yelp reviews for Jackson's or something? Especially because she apparently doesn't want to be perceived as a trash talker like Colby Covington. And is this the kind of tone deafness, a part of why a cyborg's camp be, uh, is considered being difficult to deal with? Yes. Tagging immigration services like that, not that it will necessarily lead to anything, because I don't think it will. And I don't think that Vegan Anderson's committing any crimes. But doing that is vile. That is vile and evil. Just the intent of it is so gross and so ridiculous and so utterly unjustifiable. Yes, she is absolutely responsible for that content, even if she's not the one out there doing it. And whoever is doing it in that case, whether it's her or her boyfriend or somebody else, doing the kind of things that they're doing where they're saying go give negative Yelp reviews to, to Jackson's or tagging immigration services, this is despicable behavior. And there's absolutely no justification for it at all. And if she's wondering why fans won't warm up to her, I mean, I don't know how much this has done to sell her reputation among the, you know, the pay-per-view buying audience, probably not enough to, for them to stop buying. But, you know, is she, I mean, this is contemptible behavior. So is, is, is she rightly in the crosshairs of some of the media and fan criticism that have come her way from these acts? 
1000%. There's no defense of it whatsoever. Either you're the one posting the vile stuff or you're negligent about the one who is. And in either case, you're culpable. Bellator is the CFL of MMA. The, the problem with Bellator is that even if they have the best fighters and the best matchups, UFC will still trump them based on brand recognition. Most MMA fans are casuals, and a lot of casuals don't know the difference between UFC and MMA. It would be like taking the 10 best football players and putting them in the CFL. People still wouldn't watch the CFL. Miocic and Ganu would have to have the same ratings for Bellator as McDonald, Lima, and vice versa for the UFC. Someone says, I called into your SiriusXM show last week, but was cut off before I could make my point. Seems like you guys have trigger fingers over there. You have one minute once you're on the air to make your point. That's enough time to make your point. Uh, but back to your point. Yeah, there's someone made a point to me once years ago. They were saying, oh, this was about Strike Force, but the rule still applies to Bellator. Let's say you didn't know anything about MMA. And then you found Bellator first, or in that case, Strike Force first. What would happen, right? You'd be like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? Oh, I love MMA now. But as much as you loved Strike Force or you loved Bellator, that would naturally lead you to probably discover the UFC. And once you discover the UFC, it stands to reason that your fandom would probably align closer to that direction because they just have more to offer for that product. And I think that that's true. Now, that's not to say that there are no ways to retain a fan base. My neighbor's getting her tree cut. You'll hear that? Jesus. Um, there's no way to to retain a fan base, I mean, or or to get just enough sufficient ratings and brand awareness to retain some kind of separate, unique identity. The problem is, as I mentioned before, you know, Pride and UFC for a time were like this. Pride was like this for a while. And then it was like UFC and Strike Force, and now it's like this with UFC and Bellator, where the difference is so great. It's like, what really is the value add in watching Bellator? Yes, you can get the value add, the occasional value add of a Rory versus Lima if you're a hardcore fan. If you're a casual fan, you can reminisce about the old days with Tito or Kimbo or Chael, but I, I don't really know how much sticking power that has, and I don't know how much it's translated over to the Rory's. I don't know how much Rory's really translated in terms of authenticity for the organization. Something's not clicking over there. Um, and I mentioned before, like on the MMA beat, my, my big hope for Bellator 192 is that it would insert itself back into the conversation about relevant, important media. And insofar as Rory versus Lima is concerned, it's done some of that. There's been some reason to believe that they have been good about accomplishing that goal. But they just, there's a lot more that has to happen with that roster before they can really do something with it. I mean, you just really get a sense of how far away they are, you know, when they're having to tell you that their ratings were averaged for the event under a million when it aired on two Viacom networks. That doesn't feel great. Now, in the end, I suppose they'll be happy with the numbers they can sell against ad inventory. You know, 1.34 million peak and then a 1.2 million average for the first round of that fight or, you know, 1.1 million for Rory versus Lima. I guess they'll take that because they can sell ads against that. But um, I don't know. I don't know about them, man. They And then they, Coker's like double tripling down on Europe which I'm sure has some business aspect that is real that I don't understand. But I know that when they do that, it does terrible over here. So I, I don't really understand their model, to be honest. I don't understand some of the things that they do. Um, Jacques Ray versus Brunson. Winner gets a title shot? I don't think so. I would say Gastelum or Wyman is going to be ahead of them for sure. Brunson maybe, but not Jacques Ray. Someone keeps asking this, lifting raw versus straps, belts, and braces. 
Opinions on loading up with straps, belts, and braces for lifting. I have a fancy pair of knee braces for Christmas, which have done wonders for my stability at the bottom of the snatch and the clean. Okay. Uh, in a similar vein, I've been using straps for deadlift for a while, and I understand the reasoning insofar as letting your limited grip strength hold back developing the back and leg muscles that deadlift can actually work on. At the same time, I feel the idea of lifting raw quite appealingly simple, simply for lack of bells and whistles, as it's your own strength and nothing but. I also think that not being braced helps you train stability as you work through micro movements on your joints. I don't have much to add to that. I would find somebody who's really good at programming the use of all of them. Obviously, for anything that's going to be you know seventy-five to eighty percent of one rep max, one one rep max, you have to have belt protection for your core, um, and especially if you even want to find what your one rep map max is, you need to have the belt on um, to do that effectively. In terms of the straps, you know, working on hook grip will uh, help eliminate that. Hook grip is painful, but if you sort of lower it into the, a lot of people grip do hook grip like really tight. You got to let it. You kind of let the fingers hang a little bit and then kind of put the hook around it on the nail. So it just takes some time. I'm not very good at the hook grip. I've been only practicing with it for honestly about a year and it's very, very painful and I don't like it. So I use straps sometimes too. You just have to have effective programming all the way around. And, so, and I'm not an effective programmer. You have to seek out somebody who is an effective programmer. All of them have a value. Uh, knee wraps, um, belts, uh, and, and, um, and then, you know, something for your grip. Um, straps, they, they all have some kind of benefit and they all have some kind of application. The question is not using too much of one and too little of the other. You got to find a way to mix them all in a way where you can still get those gains and uh, at the same time, um, you know, train safely. Uh, Luke, just want to let you know the upload of the live chat to iTunes hasn't worked out too well in the past few episodes. I know this new computer is driving me crazy, but I have the old one still. I'm going to use the old one to upload today's episode. So apologies for that. I'll make sure the new one is better. Uh, let's see. Chael Sonic's performance this weekend. You, uh, Luke, were you at least a little surprised at how old Chael looked this weekend? After the Tito fight, I thought he was done. It really looked like he was just going through the motions to cash a couple more checks. Chael fought his fight against Rampage, and honestly, I thought Chael looked as good as uh, any of his fights could have hoped for. When the Grand Prix was announced, I thought Chael was maybe the worst fighter in the tournament, but who knows? Do you think he'll have anything for the winner of Fedor versus Mir? Hard to say. Hard to see how uh, Mir looks and if he wins. If it's Fedor, I could see Chael winning, to be quite honest, um, based on ground control and the fact that Fedor lacks the kind of explosivity either with his hips or his hands that he used to, so I wouldn't rule him out. Uh, but at the same time, I'll say this about Chael. Did you notice how Chael took Rampage down? Like The doubles and singles that he used to go for against the fence, he doesn't really do anymore, at least not in this contest. I have to go back and see what he did against Vanderlei. He might have done them there, but in this one, he did all the trips. He's really become an expert tripper. A lot of guys now are just shooting to make contact. And from contact, they'll get an overhook and an underhook. And you saw him do the same thing. He had one underhook and he had one overhook. And he took the overhook, uh, Habib Nurmagomedov style, pinched it to himself, gable grip, and then tripped on the inside that way to the same size as the pinched um, overhook because then Rampage can't put his hand out and post or do anything with it. They just go to that side. Um, and he had the one where uh, John Lineker got taken down by TJ Dillashaw, where it looks like a double, you shoot a double, but then rather than like a knee pound or just changing levels and trying to reach on someone's hips, you actually shoot past them a little bit, and your outside foot uh, and leg blocks theirs, and it's like a trip, and you fall with them to the ground. He did that as well, you know. Um, he's he, And on top, he's got 
he threatens that Kamora from half guard. He really likes that. And I think a lot of guys don't buck and roll there because they don't want to get if you if you're in that position and you have a loose half guard and then you try to, you know, uh, get out with a, like a buck and roll from mount, they can or a buck and roll from half guard, they can just take mount really easily. And I think he knows that, but he he sets up that Kamora from half guard and at least it keeps him on top and he you know, he, he catches a few you know, he gives a few blows and he gets some accumulated time on top like He's, uh, he's continued to evolve his game. He clearly has put in work in the gym, and it's not a substantial upgrade, but it's a noticeable addition to his game that even in his UFC run, I didn't necessarily see that he had. So, Chael might surprise you. Chael might surprise you. be very, very interesting to see. Uh, it's 2.15, so let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. All right. Now that it's underway, your feelings on the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. I, for one, uh, like the novelty. I'm excited to see what's to come next. I did not think that the Sonnen versus Rampage fight was all that fun. I just not not whose fault is that? It feels like it's Rampage's fault, to be honest. But um, I'm still I'm still going to keep an open mind about it. I'm still going to keep an open mind about it because maybe the next fight will be really, really good down the line, you know. Uh what do you think about P what Chael's J Jay Glazer theory? I don't know what is Jay Gla what is Chael's Jay Glazer theory. I don't know what it is. In regards to oversaturation of fighters and cards, here are the undercards for UFC 08, which was lauded at the time as a terrible card, and the undercard for UFC 220. A pretty shocking difference in the two. All right, so here's UFC 108. Paul Daly versus, this is the undercard. So Paul Daly versus Dustin Hazlett, Sam Stout, Joe Lazon, Jim Miller, Dwayne Ludwig, JDS versus Gilbert Ivel. Then on Spike TV, Martin Campman versus Jacob Volkman, Cole Miller versus Dan Lozon. And then your prelim card, Mark Munoz versus Ryan Jensen, Jake Ellenberger versus Mike Pyle, and Tractor Rafael Oliveira versus John Gunderson versus 220. Calvin Cater versus Shane Burgos, John Vellante versus Francis Marbahosa, uh, Rob Font, Thomas Almeida, that was pretty good. Kyle Bokniak versus Brandon Davis, Abdul Razak Al Hassan versus Sabat Homasi, Dustin Ortiz, Alashanje Pantoja. Then Julio Arce versus Dan Ige. Yeah, not great. Not great. True or false? Max Holloway destroys Frankie Edgar. Rose Namina stops. You want to get Jacek again? Habib never going to have defeats Tony. I'll say destroys, false, but wins. Yes. Stops Ian Jacek again. I'll say true. And then Habib defeats Tony. I'll say true on that as well. Oh, I got a question from. Here we go. I got a question from. Is this Brendan Schaub? Is this the real one? No, it's the phony one. Uh, let's see. Rampage again complained about an opponent not fighting him and said Chael fought like a bitch afterward. Although he's still fit to fight, do you think this mentally will end his career before his body tells him to stop? I don't know if I don't know what it's going to do for his career, but it's just not interesting anymore. It's like we get it, dude. You want people to strike with you, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It just, it, I don't want to besmirch Rampage because I do think he's had a decorated career, but it's not interesting to me. I don't really get it. So, uh, let's see. Do you think we will see a different result in Saturday's main event with Brunson versus Jacare? What do you mean by different? Did you hear Shab's breakdown of Francis's takedown defense or Rose and Pat Barry on Rogan? Unfortunately, I have not. Uh, I mean, look, I've talked about Francis's takedown defense on the Monday morning analyst. There's a lot that's not good. 
There's a lot that's not good. There's some that's not so bad, and there's some that's okay. Like, so the best you can say about it is it's okay. And there's certain things about it that are like not so good. And there's some parts about it that are like really bad. So that how would you grade it? You would grade it probably somewhere around not so good, you know, like a C minus at best uh, overall. So here's the good news though. The things that you're bad at, if you work on them, those are the things you can make the most progress in, right? If you're already a black belt in jujitsu, it's hard to get even better. You can get better. You will get better if you continue to train, but you've reached such a level of technical mastery that you're only really adding, you know, specific details or, you know, really at the margins, right? And those can be, and you know, when you're facing against another black belt, those margins make a big difference. But in terms of like, overall skill there's not much room for you to grow when you're not good at something that's when you can grow the most the question for francis is is he going to put in the work to get there you know for a guy who has gotten really good really easily and won relatively easily and now <clears throat> ran into somebody who is much better than him and showed him that there's you know he held a mirror up and let him know what was going on what does he see in that reflection does he see what we saw which is that there's a lot of athletic potential and if he really works he can you know, I don't know how good he can be, but he can definitely be a lot better. And if he's a lot better, imagine then how good he could be overall. Or is he just going to get marginally better at it and then he's not going to really do a whole lot? So the question for me is not, you know, is he good at defending takedowns? He's okay to not. He's like, he's not, he's not okay at it, right? That's basically what I would say. Uh, he's not horrible at it overall, but he's not good at it. The question is, what's he going to do about it? And only he can answer that question, not you or I. We would think of McGregor calling Habib dog S and a sloppy bum. I don't think much about it. Neither should you. Um, why does DC get more credit than most for being a nice guy? It's part of the reason for his negative backlash. Why does he get more credit than most for being a nice guy? Because he's a nice guy who's been put through the wood chipper by a all-time great opponent who has at the same time been all-time frustrating and all-time confusing and all-time weird. And the combination of all of them has made it for these incredibly redemptive, difficult moments. He doesn't get credit just because he's nice. He gets credit for being nice through this tumultuous period that he's had to deal with. Twitter handle stated that Anderson can't... What? what? Oh, Chris Cyborg's Twitter hand, handler stated that Anderson can't compete due to visa issues. Yeah, that was really gross. Uh, what do you think of McGregor calling Habib a rookie after the Barboza fight? I don't think much about it. What are the odds of Brock Lesnar coming back? I think there might be actually kind of strong. Has this got legs to it? Is this the standard leveraging WWE with UFC story again? I would bet maybe you'll see him. What? DC, don't silence the S at the end of words. Pronouncing Calvijo name with the J sound is equivalent to enunciating the S at the end of George's St. Pierre first name and making the argument that phonetically English speakers in DC don't silence the S at the end of words. I don't know what to tell you. I have to come back and read that again. Given Vitor at 152, Hunt, Lesnar at 200, and the USADA re retirement exemptions, when we... When can we say the UFC has purposefully altered the outcomes of professional sporting contests? Those. 
without further information, it would be irresponsible to say that they've done that, right? Can you name a... I got to go back to this one. Can you name a better sponsor shade throw than Brock drinking a Coors Light because Bud wouldn't pay him? No, but everyone... Um, everyone body armor... Uh, everyone body armor... Um, had that presser so cynthia francis and cody they all lost after that i mean maybe maybe francis won with um i can't remember if it, was that after he fought over him i think it was yeah so it was so francis won with the over him fight but then after that they all kind of lost pretty quickly and then big fights too here we go spanish is my native language and i have to agree with you the double l in spanish is pronounced just like a j is pronounced in the english language I hope this puts the this puts this to bed. What's this gentleman's name? Something Garcia. I don't know. There you go. Y'all can y'all can keep parading your ignorance, but I'm right about this one. Uh, let's see. UFC must have a contingency plan for Tony Habib, given the amount of times this fight has fallen through. If one falls out, would you give Nate that opportunity? Imagine if you won. Wow, that's a tough question. Jeez. Um, Man, meritocratically, you couldn't. Promotionally, you could. Um, it would depend who else would be available. Like if Eddie Alvarez was available, I would go that direction. Dustin Poirier was available, I would go that direction. It would really depend. It would really depend. My head, my 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 inclination would be no. But I don't know if it's a hundred percent ossified hard no. Bellator's new events on Paramount cannot be watched in the UK. What's the deal? I don't understand what their deal is in the UK. They're like, we're going to go super far into Europe on tape delay. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, and then you're going to watch an event later on in the week or so. I don't, I don't get that strategy. Here's how it was explained to me when I was on MMA Uncensored Live. What they would do is, unless you had direct TV, what they would do is, we aired at what? Like, was it like a Wednesday or Thursday at 9 p.m. or something? Something like that. And then, of course, it would air later on at 9 p.m. in the West Coast, not 6 p.m. And what they would do is they would take the numbers from the first one and the numbers from the second one, and they would add it together, and then they would sell that against ad inventory. And that would, you get, like, whatever number it was, you would get, like, either half or two-thirds of that, depending on what it was, together for, for a greater whole. So you could appreciably increase your audience for advertising's sake by about one-third or something. That's that's the way they always had looked at it, and I think that's what they're doing here. But it creates so many other problems with I mean that with live sports that yeah I I, I I I really don't know I don't I don't understand I don't understand. But that's what it was always explained to me when when back in 2012 when I was on Spike. That's that's how I always understood it. Uh, okay. Let's see. Does Perth deserve a better card? Part of that card is just built around having locals on it for, I think, Australian television purposes. So I understand that. But yeah, you're right. For pay-per-view, it is, man, not great. Here's another person. Uh, passionate about the double L's in Spanish, but I say tortilla, not tortilla. That's fine. I don't have an issue with that. I'm not telling you that's wrong. I, I It's not wrong. Lots of people pronounce it that way in lots of parts of the Spanish-speaking world. I can assure you, in many of the parts I've been to, you don't ever hear the word tortilla. Not once. Trust me. And the way that they pronounce their cities, Villa de Leva, Medellin, y'all have to come to grips with the fact that I'm right. I mean, I know it hurts you in the bottom of your soul to admit this, but I am.
Uh, let's see. The recent JRE MMA podcast, Rose talked about how her diet is mainly comprised of whole, clean foods. Mighty Mouse has also talked about how he doesn't use supplements. For us regular donks, is there any benefit to supplements or just a clean diet? There's not much benefit to supplements, depending on what the supplements are. Um, it also depends on what you're doing. Creatine is always, I mean, I don't know if it's any good for MMA purposes, but in terms of like, you know, for, creatine is good for a lot of different things, not least of which is recovery. Um, so uh, everyone will tell you in the weightlifting world, you should be taking creatine. There's a good company that makes supplements who I really trust when they eat whole foods, like they don't eat pro anything processed. So like they'll eat a sweet potato and like a baked chicken and broccoli and a banana and cherries, right? They don't eat anything that someone takes that and then manipulates it in some kind of way, either with additives or even some other kind of culinary process and then ships it off to you. They want to eat everything whole real food. There's a group called earth fed muscle. Uh, check them out. They do a lot of supplements that have a lot of scientific backing. Now, the benefit is always it's a supplement. So in other words, if you do all the training properly, and that includes all the recovery properly, which, you know, cupping and cryotherapy, if there's any real value to cryotherapy, I don't know. But for example, getting proper sleep, getting proper hydration, those kinds of things, the supplements can add a little bit on top of that at the very end. So there is some value to it, but a lot of them sell you a lot of bad stuff. So when you say supplementation, it's the right kind of supplementation, provided that everything else you're doing is the appropriate kind of training. That's really what you need to be looking for. And at the end, yeah, look, if you if you have a good program and you train the right way and you eat the right way and you hydrate the right way and you sleep the right way and you take creatine on top of that, you will get benefit from that. It will actually increase muscle mass and help with recovery and things like that. But if you eat like crap and you don't sleep very well and you take creatine, what benefit is it? Not much, if any. Uh, during a recent podcast, Ben Askren told Joe Rogan that he believed the folk style wrestling would be the biggest genesis in MMA. I don't know what that means, biggest genesis. It already is the biggest component. I don't, I don't know exactly what he means by that. Uh, the fact that Stipe is a firefighter and heavyweight champ, a testament to just how good he is or an indication of the quality of the heavyweights? Both. Both. What's on Julia Budd? Uh, she's okay. Any chance she leaves Bellator and jumps to the UFC? No, she was with Coker under strike four. She's a good thing going in Bellator. She's a champion. I doubt she'd leave. Will the UFC ever build an actual women's featherweight division? Doesn't look that way. And I don't really blame them, to be honest. <laughs> um, what do you think Joe Rogan keeps in his fanny pack? Probably on it and something keto related. I don't know. Just a guess. What is this? Last one. Christ. Okay, Luke, during the MMA beat, which of these would you rather do? Rip Jeff's shirt right off him and put him in, put it in the bin. Take Chuck's cap off and throw it out the window. Rip Danny's mustache right off his face. Well, I wouldn't want to do any of them because Jeff's shirt is central to his identity. Chuck's hat is central to his identity. And Danny's mustache is uh, excellent. Um, but if I had to pick, I would take Chuck's cap off and throw it out the window because when you do, he has another cap right in his bag. He can put it right on. 
So there you go. All right. Appreciate you guys watching. Thank you so much. Subscribe to MMA Fighting below. Like the video. By the way, we will have coverage of UFC on Fox 27. Uh, so stay tuned to MMAfighting.com for that. Danny Segura and I are going to do a pre- and post-fight show. So that should be a lot of fun right here on MMA Fighting. Um, like I said, thank you guys so much for watching. I'll be back next week with this. You're the best. I really appreciate it. And I promise, by the way, I promise, promise, promise to make sure the podcast for this episode today is really good. And oh, by the way, got some, uh, I won't say cool announcement next week, but you guys have been asking about the next round of t-shirts. I got, I got some things in the works for you very, very soon. So thank you guys so much for watching. Until next time, stay frosty.